Hey, welcome back to The Soundtable hosted by Make Pop Music. This is episode 13 or episode two of season two of The Soundtable. I'm your host, Austin. And as always, I'm joined by our co-host, Miranda. Hey, guys. And today is a really exciting episode because we have our first guest of season two, and the guest for this episode is going to be our good friend, Platinum. If you don't know who Platinum is, he is a musical artist and a producer, and to be honest, he is just absolutely dominating it. He's sitting over three million monthly listeners. He has accumulated hundreds of millions of streams, and he's done it all independently. He produces his own records, he mixes his own records, and he really is in charge of his entire creative vision. So we have an amazing chat with Platinum throughout this podcast episode. I think you're going to get a lot of really, really really great information from just a fun conversation that we've had. So definitely stay tuned for this. If you want to check out Platinum, there will be links in the actual show notes. So make sure you go follow him on Instagram, TikTok. Make sure that you go listen to his Spotify. He is actually in the process of releasing his brand new EP, Hellbound 2. And he's got a new single coming out this Friday, February 3rd, called If There's a God, It's Me. So if you're waiting for new Platinum music, especially after you hear this amazing chat, you won't have to wait long at all. So make sure that you go follow him on Spotify and all of his socials. Thank you so much to Platinum for joining us on this chat. Let's dive in. Dude, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We are super excited to chat with you. I know we've done one collaboration in the past where the uh, the download had a couple errors when we uh we actually tried to get it going so we weren't able to use any of that so I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into some of that again and then we'll, we'll dive into more of you as an artist and more of your story but just to introduce yourself for anybody who might not be familiar with you or with your work would you mind giving us kind of a quick little rundown of who you are what you've done kind of where you're at in your current uh career with music and then we'll just go from there yeah man so my name is platinum real name is michael you can call me either for the sake of this podcast uh, I started making music when I was very young and I launched the platinum project in 2015, I believe, but don't, mm. you know, check me on that. And, uh, I just started releasing music from home because I'm self-produced and I write everything, record everything, vocal produce, mix master. So I just started releasing music at the beginning of my career. And first single I ever put out did a million streams on Spotify. And I went, Whoa, <laughs> this is potentially something viable. So from there, I just really dialed in my sound and sort of grabbed elements from, folk singer-songwriter, which I was making before I started this project, and directly into EDM at the time. And now I'm sort of genre-bending in a million different directions, but very happily putting out a ton of music and growing and building the fan base. Love that. Yeah. I mean, if you are one thing, it is very consistent. I'm always seeing you release new music. I saw that you just had a single a couple of weeks ago, Stress Me Out. That song was amazing. Great job, as always. Thanks. Are you working on more stuff for the future? What are you kind of in the works with right now? So I've been single based for the entirety of my career. And that was cool sort of in the developmental phase. But now that there's a really strong fan base behind me and, and a lot of people listen to my music, um, I want to give fans projects. So I have a seven song project coming out in a week and a half. Oh, wow. And then after that seven song project, I have a five song project coming out at the end of the year. And then after that five song project, I have a six song project coming out in February. So Damn. tons of <laughs> already lined up. What are the what are the vibes for them? Are you kind of keeping the kind of spooky trap vibe for the next one since we're in the fall? Or are you going more kind of into your I know you've kind of got like this like retro 80s bag. And then I know you've also got yeah. some more of the electronic stuff. What are the upcoming projects sounding like? Well, the big thing with projects for me is I'm trying to cure my musical ADHD a little bit because I, I can never stick 
to one sound. And that's why I liked the singles format. But Mm -hmm. I think with this darker, trappy crossover sound, I've really found a home, at least for the short term. I can't promise I'll do this for more than a year because I like I said, I, I like to grab from a bunch of different genres. But this next project is kind of ambient, dark, trappy, and more than anything, cinematic. And then early next year, Hellbound 2 will come out, which is obviously spooky. Right. Well, that's super sick. I haven't heard much of that. I know that you've kind of sent some stuff back and forth to me uh, like over the past couple months. So I'm super excited to hear the projects. Uh, It's really interesting that you're just now kind of getting into your extended releases. Like I know you have the Hellbound EP. Are you really looking forward to having these kind of more thematic bodies of work? And are you kind of going into those writing sessions completely different than just I'm going to make an absolute banger that'll get 10 million on Spotify? It is. Well, thank you for that, by the way. That was a subtle compliment. I didn't miss that. Um, Oh, they heard the uh, intro card. They know the numbers already. You're killing (laughs) it. (laughs) uh, The the singles model was cool because I could sort of sit down and just let, you know, my creative wins take me where they will. Sure. But uh, with the project model, it's cool because the only way that I know how to make the same kind of music thematically is to sit down and make music intensively for like 14 days. So the whole project, I basically sourced the original ideas in 14 days. Right. I knew if I took longer than that, I would get excited about a new sound. Maybe I'd go in a Latin direction mm-hmm. and then suddenly the whole project would make no sense. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, okay, I feel inspired. There's a bunch of references I want to draw from. I know conceptually where I want to land. So let me take 14 days, do 10 hour days and just, just, get, just get a template and a, and a sort of a rough form of all the songs. And then once I had that rough form, it was just finishing it. Right. So for me, it's like the blitz approach as opposed to like a slow drawn out thing. Mm-hmm. Especially I'm, you do it all by yourself. I imagine it's easier just to like get it done. Yeah. I, it's just like, cause I produce and I think producers will resonate with this when you're sitting alone and you're just sort of like scrolling samples and playing chords and just drawing, you just get excited mm-hmm. and the, and that's great. And that's, it's a really important part of the process. But if you get excited, at least for me, I get excited about a bunch of different shit. And I, I just have to hone that in. So the only way I know how to do that is to just just 10 hour days consecutively until I arrive at something that I think is is packaged and, and creatively concise. I am the exact same way. I'll go back and I'll listen to a year of projects that I've taken with artists or even things that I've just made myself that are kind of sitting on our drive still or even content that we make for make pop music. And I can very clearly tell what mood I was in, what my mental health was yeah. like, what I was listening to it, because yeah. I'm kind of the oh. same as you where like I'm working in these pockets. So sometimes I'm on like my atmospheric trappy stuff. Other times I'm doing like really shiny top 40s pop. But it's really hard for me to like day to day swap those. I'm more so going batches yeah. of like a couple weeks or a month. And then I'm like, all right, that's cool. I feel like I've beaten that to death. I'm moving on to the next thing. And then maybe I'll circle well, back. Let me ask you this, because sure. for me, I'm always producing for myself. I don't produce for other people. And that's just because from a time POV, I, I can't. Um, because you're producing for other people, when you're out of a project cycle with an artist, like I know you did the Riley record. So right. obviously during Riley record time, you're working on Riley sounding shit. But when you're done with that project, and let's say you have no active production projects, which is probably very rare, but let's say it's one day, what are you making? Yeah, that's a super good question. It's something that I don't think I've literally ever actually addressed. So like when I'm sitting down to make music, especially for myself, like something that's not for a client or for an artist or for a piece of content, I like to kind of just start with one single thing and it might be like the first chord progression I play or the first cool like synth patch that I flip through. And then I tend to be pretty genreless if I'm going in without some kind of like brief for an artist or for a piece of content. Because then it's like, I've got all of these different influences that I like and I have all this music that 
I get to make a lot of, but there are certain things that I don't really ever get to incorporate. Maybe they're too experimental or maybe they're just not in fashion. And those are the things that I like to kind of play around with. And then sometimes I'll even use those to kind of circle back with artists that I'm working with and be like, hey, here's something that I made that didn't have a brief at all. I think it's kind of a cool sound that not too many people are doing right now. Is this something that you want to incorporate into your sound or is this something that you want to hop on and we can do something with? And like, I don't have a ton of tracks that just sit. Most of everything that I do is for somebody for a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's not, then it's it's going to be a little bit different. I'm very rarely just making stuff that where I'm just like, oh, I made this record that wasn't for Riley, but I'm going to give it to Riley because yeah. it sounds exactly like him. Because I, I just go into yeah. those days knowing like, I have to make this record for this artist. This is the goal. Make it and then get the fuck out of there. See, I'm the same way. But it, it, for me, one thing that's felt challenging is whenever I sit down to make music, I always feel like it's goal oriented. Like I need mm-hmm. to place a song for this record or I have to like it's there's a very specific genre that I go into every session aiming to achieve or cinematic idea or lyrical idea or whatever it might be. Um, so what I've been trying to do now. And it's been challenging is, you know, at least like once a week, I've been trying to have a session where I sit down and I make something that I know for a fact I will not release. Yes. Something that is eclectic and out of the realm of anything that I would ever put out. Because I think those tracks and those sessions are the most productive for sort of growth. So I might sit down and make something entirely orchestral, and then I'll pick up a couple interesting techniques with mixing strings. Mm-hmm. But if I don't do the orchestral session, I will not pick up the technique. I'm the exact same. And it's one of those things, too, especially like with when you download new tools or new software, or new senses, like you have to have those sessions... I think that there are goal-based sessions and then there are just experimental sessions. And you have to go in being okay with the fact that you might spend eight hours on something that nobody literally ever hears. But you might get 15 new things that you can incorporate into other records. And that was one of the things of like, every time I start getting burnt out, like if I've done 40 records in a month or two for a bunch of different Mm -hmm. artists and I'm just like, I'm tapped. What I'll do is I'll kind of go in and I'll just have a day where it's like, no goals. I'm going to, like, I'll specifically make myself only use senses that I never grab. So like, no serum, no Omnisphere. I'll dip into stuff that I've like, never even downloaded that people have sent and how do you make a song without omnisphere it's so that's hard that's what i'm saying it's but an then, impossible goal exactly but then what i'll do is i'll be like well i kind of want this like weird creepy pad but i can't use omnisphere so i'll just record something in my room and then i'll throw a bunch of reverb on it and then start mixing stuff and now i've got new textural elements and then sometimes i save those that i can kind of recycle into an actual song later and i yeah. think it's I know hip hop producers do this a lot. Like they have production days and then they have loop days where they just go in and they're like, I'm going to work on 10 minutes per loop and I'm going to pop out 50 loops today. I'm not going to do anything with them, no drums. And I think days like that are really important to kind of like reset creatively, creatively. So I'm, uh, I'm not surprised that you do it, but I am kind of glad to hear because you do kind of pull from a lot of different elements. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of dive into was because you're so kind of genre bending, depending on, what lane you're in at the moment what are some of your biggest kind of like musical influences before you started making music and now through being you know a self-produced artist and how do you kind of incorporate those do you listen to a lot of stuff not like your music or are your tastes pretty similar to what you're popping out i so it's interesting i enjoy listening to music that reminds me of my music like because obviously i make the certain kind of music because i like that kind of music but i don't listen to that i don't listen to similar artists very often Mm-hmm. Um, when I listen to music, I listen these days, this is a new thing. I listen to weird stuff that I feel is interesting and, and sort of expands my palate. It didn't used to be that way. Right. I think when I was, I'm, obviously everyone's still learning, but when I was in the more early phases of learning, I would listen to stuff that I wanted to make. 
because it felt like if I listen to this enough, I'll be able to pick up the production techniques. But right. now that I feel, and no, no ego in this, but now that I'm years into my career, I feel like I can do those things. Um, so now it's about listening to music that feels unfamiliar to me. Um, like a lot of what I've been listening to lately has been hyper pop and jazz because right. there are production techniques in hyper pop that I have to actually think about. I actually mm-hmm. have to think about, and that's really fun for me. And jazz is just musically unfamiliar. So yeah. those are the two things I've been reaching from lately. But as far as what references, uh, what insp- inspires my music, particularly the dark stuff, uh, Tim Burton films, mm. uh, The Neighborhood, Melanie Martinez, and Suburban would be the references that come off the top of my head. Those are all references that I've almost was exactly sure you were going to go with. But it is yeah. interesting that you were saying that like, I'm kind of in the same boat where I love the music I make and I make it because I like it and I will listen to my own music and similar artists. But it's one of those things where like if I'm in a certain mood and I'm listening to a lot of dark stuff, if I'm making something like that and listening to you and listening to Chase Atlantic and listening to Suburban, I'm just going to be like, oh, fuck, I think I just made that exact song because I like reverse engineered it. And so, yeah, I'll kind of do that same thing where I'll have like a palate cleanser where I go listen to like soundtracks, like Disney soundtracks or movie Mm -hmm. scores or just anything that is not super like commercialized western pop music because i think it's like you said there are so many cool things that you can introduce and i can kind of hear some of that even with like the jazz stuff i know that you know you'll kind of like bend chord progressions and stuff like that but specifically with on the last video that we did that never ended up coming out we were talking about how you like to layer chord extensions with things like like ninths and thirteenths and elevenths and just use like those single kind of tonal pedal elements to kind of sit on top and that's a big thing that it's done in jazz through just large arrangements, not necessarily through production, but I think that it does kind of show your palette because your music does have these slight little subtle nuances that not everybody in your kind of genre has. And I think that, you know, that might not exist if you didn't listen to a bunch of different stuff. It's just for me too. 95% of the people who listen to my music do not care about the third ambience loop that has a subtle 11th. They do not care. But right. I, I'm sitting there like, woo! You're like, I know it's there. <laughs> I got a lot of this one. Yeah. I, it's, it's one of those things too where I feel like every producer, not every producer, but a lot of newer producers that I talk to are so focused with all of the elements that are heard. And it's like, what really makes a record special to me is elements that you don't hear and you barely feel, but if you took them out, yeah. the record wouldn't feel done. And that's one of the things here's, that I think I- you do so well. Here's the thing. First off, I appreciate that, man. But what I always say to people who ask me production questions, especially people that make what I would consider, you know, top 40 or contemporary pop leaning stuff is if everything's familiar, unless you wrote the perfect song, it's probably not good. Like if you're Sam Smith or Casey Musgraves, you can get away with it because the songwriting is just so over. Like it's, by the way, Casey Musgraves is unbelievable. I am such a Casey Musgraves fan. Oh my God. Um, but if you're doing that and you want to you want to be bare bones, piano, guitar, a little bit of production, you better write a great song because yes. that's going to be, you know. But if you're doing a production intensive song, you need elements that are a little bit unfamiliar. Like you, you need the listener not to say, OK, yeah, drums, piano, I got it. You need a couple things that you really have to like conceptualize. Like the listener should not know what it is. Right. And I think there's big records. Like if you know the record For You by Black Bear. Yeah. Uh, off of Dead Roses. Yeah it's just there are intangibles that people who don't make music don't understand like certain arp synths and certain ambience loops that that just are ear candy in a way that's unfamiliar and i think that stuff is so important to like the escapism of music because if you can place piano drums bass if it's a great song it's great but if you really want to do like a production-based record there has to be that level of magic 
I agree. And I think that's like, I think a lot of people get confused that people are trying to doctor up an ugly song with production techniques by just like throwing the kitchen sink at it. But I kind of disagree. Like a bad song is still going to be a bad song, even with great production. And a good song is still going to be a good song when you just have acoustic guitar and a vocal. And so it's cool though, that you're kind of like dipping into those intangibles because I think that your music in particular kind of feels super uh, atmospheric and you kind of feel like you're inside Mm -hmm. the record. Like there's all of this ambience and there's all of these like subtleties that Again, if you were kind of just sticking with that chord progression and that main kind of drum pattern that you have, it would still be the same record at the core, but I don't know if they would be yeah. getting millions and millions and millions of streams because there's also probably 30 other records that sound exactly like I that. I know. That's, I, want, I want my music to be familiar. I'm not trying to write the quirkiest top lines on the planet. That's not my goal. Right. My goal is to make alternative pop records that are sort of like atmospheric and unique because of the palettes that they draw from. Right. You know, and that's what I, that's all my favorite acts do that. The neighborhood, which is my favorite act of all time is amazing at that. Um, Chase Atlantic, who I've collaborated with is unbelievable at that. Like the 1975, if you ever heard them live, they open with these soundscapes. Yeah. Cause that's most like a lot of what makes those records sound so magical are the crazy sound design elements. And yeah, the songs are great, but when you go live and you hear 15 minutes of just sparkly ambience, that's what makes the 1975, the 1975, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I agree. And like, even like I was listening to the 1975 record on the flight. Mm-hmm. And then earlier today, because we're working on a video that will come out this week that's like five production elements from the 1975 and everybody always thinks of like the gated snare and the super coarse heavy like twangy guitar but there are all of these like really subtle things and i think that they do this well and i've kind of heard this incorporated in your music and black bear as well like you just brought him up Mm -hmm. and that's kind of like being okay with things being a little bit imperfect or rough around the edges so like when you're doing all of this crazy vocal production like you're okay with artifacts showing up you're okay with things starting to like accidentally bit crush and you know i was listening to the 1975 record and there's all of these like weird fuck-ups that are happening on a cello or there's all of these like clipped guitar signals and it's one of those things Mm -hmm. that that adds character that's things that again omniseer is a great tool but if you're just constantly going in and you're using the same patches you're not going to get some of those subtle things and i think that's what makes especially a really really produced record feel live because like you said sam smith you're going to resonate with that record because they have a beautiful voice and it's a beautiful song and arrangement Mm -hmm. when you have a song that is not supposed to be in that lane you still need people to connect and when you can find those subtle things i think that's what's so important so i would love to talk a little bit about kind of your production process because i know that your productions get pretty cooked. Like they have a bunch of stuff. I know you're constantly layering on layering on layering and bouncing. And how does the song start for you though? Like what is the most basic platinum demo like? And then what's the, what's the structure of finishing that? Well, I like to stare at myself in the mirror and cry for at least eight hours before every session. It's a very important part of my creative process. Absolutely. Uh, And then I shout, you are the best. You are the best. Really quick mood switch. Positive affirmations. We need a little bit of mania. Very important to the creative process. Yeah. Um, And then I listen to my old catalog and say, this is terrible. You know, it's a very rocky road of yeah. emotional. You just said turmoil. they're not champagnes and sunshine again. Not champagne and sunshine. Again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a one hit wonder. I'm more than a one hit wonder. Uh. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I, I'm production first because uh, it, I, it'd be cool to flip it around and do some songwriting first, but I, I can't help it. What's most exciting about music to me is textures right and those can be vocal they don't have to be like production in the most literal sense but textures excite me so i might grab 
a couple of different elements and just mix them together. Like combinatory play is what does it for me. So I'll just try to find two things that should not make sense together and basically bend them and warp them until they make sense. So maybe I'll record a vocal because I have this vocal idea in mind. And then I'll say, what's the, the most unlikely thing that would pair with this? And then I'll try to force those two elements to work together until I arrive at something that I think is interesting. That's that's sort of the, the mile high perspective on what I do. How complex are your arrangements and your productions before you start laying vocals on them? Like, is it pretty much the finished production no, that you're hearing with all the, they're or done. is it it's kind of bare bones? No, they're done. They're oh, done. I don't really? Touch, they're done. They're, they are. I hardly, I, it is rare for me to do any production by the time I hit vocal tracking. Even all the I know cool little ear candy stuff that like kind of goes in tandem with vocals? Yeah, because that's that, like vocals to me are obviously the emotional driver of the right. record and that's what people grab onto. But if for my music at least, if there's no bed for those vocals to sit on, I can't make an accurate judgment if those vocals work or not. Mm-hmm. I, I only know if the emotional impulse of a vocal is correct if I hear it with production. I'm kind of doing guesswork. And this again, other people can do this, but for me, I, I need to hear how a vocal sounds against a semifinal or final record to even know if I'm if I'm hitting that emotional chord that I'm trying to aim for. That makes sense too, especially because you go so crazy with vocal production. I guess it really wouldn't make much sense for you to like going into tracking vocals, you have a pretty good idea of like, I'm chopping these vocals super hard here, or these are going to be very tuned, or these are going to be crushed with crazy harmonies. Or do you start experimenting with all that once you've tracked a couple vocals throughout the song? I'd say all experimentation. I, I track the lead because that's the writing component. Right. And then I have a second, like it's a whole, it's a literally a separate session for vocals. I don't like to put vocals and, and track in the same session. So I'll start a second, what I call a vocal production session, and I'll have the lead vocal, and then I'll usually make like 30 to 60 tracks just for vocal and start doing a bunch of automated shit. Um, But it's important for me to have that be a separate process because it's overwhelming to be working on drums and vocals because I treat vocals in such a nuanced way. Mm -hmm. Right, well, that's what I was going to say is your vocals are insane because you'll literally have one line of a song that's got like six different vocal tracks in it between different effects Mm -hmm. like you'll have a low vocal you'll have a crushed vocal you'll have this like super wide bit crushed vocal so i was wondering if that happens in the same session because i would get kind of adhd going back and forth of being like that's cool but like maybe i could do this with a synth instead and not do that with the vocals so it makes sense you're pretty committed before you even start doing that vocal production i have to be yeah if i'm not my brain gets overwhelmed and i'll start saying oh does that hi-hat work with that bit crushing and then i'll have to i'll start like micromanaging them but i i just lose sight of the of the goal so i actually have a big thing for me is printing stuff right like if i think it's good i print it because my tendency is to be too compulsive and get too granular so i just i like to i have to like stamp the end of each phase of a song to get through it well that was one of the things that when we chatted uh, a couple months ago like before we had this podcast or anything which by the way that conversation was like a huge reason of why we even launched this podcast i just mm-hmm. had such a good time well, talking about production with a friend i was like yeah, i need yeah, to do this more often so everybody asks us they're like what's the goal with the podcast i was like i don't know like i want to have cool conversations yeah. with cool artists and producers and like kind of geek out for an hour or two <laughs> uh so i just yeah, wanted to like, shout you out for that but y- that was one of the things that i picked up was like i was not a big print and commit person because i always have the cpu i'm kind of just like Mm-hmm. I like finessing, but I've started doing it a lot more recently. And there have been a couple productions that have gotten cut that I don't think would have happened had I not, because I was doing these different techniques yeah. where I started chopping out silences or I'd pitch certain, you know, full synth arrangements up by 12 semitones. And it's kind of, it mm-hmm. kind of goes back to your style or even that hyper pop style of 
if you really want to mangle audio at some point, it has to just be audio because you have to have those effects yeah. and everything committed because otherwise you're going to be automating 95 parameters on a hundred different synths and it's just never going to sound yeah. the same. I am profoundly anti-MIDI and that's just for my records. I hate MIDI. It, yeah. It's so limiting. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where I always thought I did until... I'm still trying to learn at what point I like to commit and at what level, like, Mm -hmm. do I want to commit a batch of synths together or do I want to commit every synth line together and kind of pre-bust those and then process on that. But that was one of the big tips I picked up because I was just like, I should start printing more because I feel like there's all of these little crossfades and reverses, shit that you can't do with MIDI. And it's one of those things of like, if you want to get in there and you want to get super granular with every single element, at some point it has to just become audio so you can kind of fuck it up again, to be honest. I'm also, I'm trying to be less granular. Like, I'm not trying to be less impactful, but I think it's important to keep sight of what effects and what procedures you go through actually have a meaningful impact. Right. Like, because we're all only willing to spend a certain amount of time on a song. Mm -hmm. And in theory, you could edit for the entirety of that time. But the the question for me is, if I'm going to spend 10 hours on this song and cap it, in theory, it's like a conceptual exercise, which edits will I do? Right. Because, you know, I, th- I don't think you need to EQ everything. I don't I don't I think people get obsessed with compression when compression is only situationally relevant. Like you don't need to compress everything. That's silly. Um, so for me, it's like what process if I had someone in the room behind me and I th- I've heard that Charlie Puth does this. If I had someone in the room behind me and they were acting as feedback for me. So when I did something, I was able to observe their reaction. Right. What things that I do impact that person? Would they care that I shelved? you know, some high end or would they care that I did a reverse or would they care if I changed the snare sample? I try to think like if the imaginary person is behind me and they're, they don't make music, they're just reacting emotionally. What things that I do will make a difference to them, you know, because otherwise I just EQ. I just sit here e- and EQ for 10 hours and then I, yeah. I, I exit having not really done anything meaningful in my opinion. Right. I think it's one of those things too of like, if you're going to spend so much time on a song and if you're going to have to hear it a million times, like you said, making yeah. every single thing that you'd actually be impactful where, yeah, you could sit there and you could EQ a vocal for 15 minutes, but you could also use that 15 minutes and find a bunch of different textural elements, do a couple different yeah. starts and stops that are going to get the listener hyped. Like you listen to some of the biggest records in the world and they're fucking clipping. The vocal was recorded on yeah. an iPhone in a bathroom. Like nobody cares yeah. as long as the song not, goes off. That is bad. Yeah. Not- there is no, I hate, I hate to be this guy because when I first started music, making music, I hated this guy who I'm about to be. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is good or bad. Like I know that when it's you start true. making music or even when you're just, when you're early or if you're just making music in general, you want a binary, mm-hmm. but the, there, are, there are coin records recorded on laptops and it, the better that you get at production, it's not about fixing that stuff. It's about knowing where to put that stuff. Like mm-hmm. there are iPhone vocals all over my shit and that's a choice. Mm-hmm. I don't ever do a lead that way, but that's because of what I'm doing. But I'll use iPhones for vocal chops and background vocals and yells. And it just has a different feel to it. And it's just about taste. All you're, develop- you're developing taste more than you're developing technique, in my opinion. You just need to know when to use shit, you know, when to use techniques. I 100% agree. We get so many people that all all the time are just like, what are the steps to making a record? What are the steps to producing in this style? Your yeah. style is actually one of our most requested on the channel ever. Everybody always wants to see, how do you make a platinum song? How do you make a, <laughs> how do you make a black bear song? How do you, they love that like dark, really overdone dark pop. And like, I love it overdone. too. Excuse me. Overdone. No, no, no. Austin. Over like, like over. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm canceling the podcast. I'm canceling the, no, no, I, like, I, like, uh, just like a million different things, like maximalist. 
There you go. What is overdone about 45 vocal tracks? <laughs> no, yeah, you you're exactly right. Earlier. You did say 60. Uh, 60. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Were and you then... saying that hit my leg? You were like, oh, I had to I had to merge all these things because, you know, if, if everything was singular, this would be like a thousand tracks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, is... I'm the exact same. Like we I think we are both kind of maximalist producers and that's a style that a lot of people want to hear. But I think that everybody asks that kind of question and I'm like, you kind of just have to learn everything that you can and then figure out what works for you, yeah. what doesn't work for you. And then you kind of have to just be like, I know that's how you're supposed to process a vocal chop, but I don't really want to do it like that. So I'm going to do something else. It's much more like I mean, problem solving to fit your own taste. And, and like everyone was obsessed for the last decade with guitar tones, like VST guitar tones. Everyone's obsessed with virtual amps. And there are a couple break records now where it's just a DI guitar. And that sounds interesting because everyone else is doing the virtual amp thing. And maybe the, you know, the raw signal becomes the trend and then the amp thing will sound interesting. So there is no, it just like things sounding progressive or interesting is all relative to what's happening in music. Mm -hmm. There's no technique that will permanently sound progressive. Yeah. It's, it's all cyclical. Be exactly. Because like DI guitar, that was the only guitar you had in funk records in the 70s. So for somebody to act yeah, like break totally. is coming along and like reinventing it, it's just like, no, but instead of running that through a Fender Twin or something like that, he just decided not to. And I think, yeah. again, it's one of those things of like pulling from different areas and different elements and different styles of music. There are things like that that you're going to be like, well, let me try just using the DI guitar instead of running that through an amp. Or let me try sending that vocal through some kind of guitar amp instead of doing a guitar through a guitar amp. Like I know that that's, yeah, totally. that's a technique that you've done, right? You've like processed vocals through all kinds of weird shit. I do. I do vocal guitar sounds more often than I do lead guitar sounds. Exactly. I just think lead guitars sound rocky. And I think a big mm -hmm. part of making music is understanding how listeners perceive elements. And even if a lead guitar works really well, I just know that the listener will go, that's a rock thing. I just know culturally that's what they'll do. It has this like so anthemic like thing like that you don't necessarily yeah. want. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Like if you're making a pop rap punk record, yeah, cool. And if you want it to sound like a Blink One Eighty Two record, do you think? Or Guns N' Roses record, sure. But like for me, if I just like the intensity of a lead guitar, but I don't want the listener to think that's a Young Blood record, you know what I mean? Or like that sounds like MGK. I I'll reach for something that's a little bit unfamiliar. So for me, going with my voice, right, and then throwing that through a million different kinds of distortion ends up being a little unfamiliar. Well, again, it's one of those things where nobody can ever truly replicate, right? Like somebody can flip through yeah. Omnisphere and be like, oh, I know for sure this isn't a platinum record. And they can try to re-emulate mm -hmm. that entire record. But until they figure out that that guitar solo that was in the bridge of the song wasn't even a fucking guitar, like they're never going to quite yeah. get there. And it's things like that, I think, that make your production style so special. And it's one of those things that I think a lot of people who are just getting in, they want everything to be so formulaic and they want everything to have a preset yeah. and they want everything to be you know, picture perfect. And it's like, sometimes you just gotta, you gotta be weird with it. Like production gets really yeah. boring if you're just being kind of stale. That's why I, I have this nasty habit of opening Omni. Like if I open Omnisphere to start a project nine times out of 10, that's a, that's an idea that I don't like right. just because there's nothing, there's nothing that feels unique to it. It just ends up feeling like, even if it's a really well-produced record, it ends up feeling like something that someone else could have made. And I don't have interest in that. Yeah. It's um, one of those things that's like cool to use as a background element because you can take a super yeah. ambient pad from there and then you can run that through a million things. And by the end, it kind of doesn't sound like an Omnisphere pad. But if you spend all of that time yeah. trying to process something that's going to be the lead sound, either it's going to just completely fall apart and degrade because you've done so much processing or it's still going to sound like an mm -hmm. Omnisphere patch like at the end of the day. Like there's only so much you can yeah. do without it 
kind of accidentally becoming an atmospheric textural element. So yeah, that, that makes a that lot of sense. Said, uh, dusting the Enigma 2, do you know that preset? Yes. That's the preset. I will say, even though I just slandered starting uh, projects with Omnisphere, that's the preset. For all you aspiring producers listening, just load that up and you'll, you'll have whatever record you want. You could land Sam Smith record, Billie Eilish record, just dusting the Enigma 2. That's all you need. <laughs> so fire. And then In Memoriam is going to be like, if you're ever trying to land like a, a cinematic, like dark pop trap oh, record, yeah. uh, In Memoriam for the pluck and then if i'm doing any kind of like indie pop stuff like on a lot of the riley stuff or if i'm going like 1975 or older chase atlantic uh cream of yeah. emotions pad is crazy i look emotions fire yeah, it's yeah. got like all this weird granular things yeah yeah i i my thing with pads that i dislike so much is i'm so picky about bleed over from chords that i end up chopping up every single chord and sometimes I just can't be bothered to do that, you know? Yeah, so, that's a lot. <laughs> stay yeah. away from pads. Well, it makes sense too, because like you said, you're kind of going in and you're really specifically adding things like chord extensions. So if you have yeah. a C major seven that then's going over a D minor nine, it's going to have all these weird overtones that even if yeah. the attack is all the way down, it's still got this reverb and it's still got this weird kind of muddiness. Um, that's kind of yeah. a cool technique though. I've never really tried it, but maybe I'll try that one. The way that I use splice, because I know it's relevant to this, is uh, I like to grab loops from cinematic packs. And I use the word cinematic a lot. That doesn't mean one thing. Just, I don't know, th things that sound very, like, re like really emotive. Right. Um, so there's, like, a bunch of different producers I reach to for this. And I like to grab finished loops. And then I like to high pass them to the point where you can only hear the top end of those loops, then use the top end of those loops as chordal extensions for my record. That's in everything I do. I do that in every song. Um, and even if there's a little bit of rub, because ultimately it is a different chord progression, I find that it just works. It has this really found sampled sound that I like more than just like droning in Omnisphere. Um, I literally did that exact yeah. same thing. I just downloaded Cashmere just released a gigantic new pack and there's a bunch of like really? song starters and atmospheres in there. And so I was in a minor and I just found one that was in a minor. And so like I'd kind of gone from like a one to a four to a six to a one and the, yeah. the loop didn't, the loop kind of just like hovered on a one and then kind of went up to a seven. But like once I layered yeah. it over it, it had this like really weird counter melody to it that again you're you're probably not going to experiment because your your hand when you go to play it it's going to be like that's not the fucking chord that you're trying to play like don't play that yeah. chord and it's yeah. one of those things yeah. that like again somebody's probably not going to think to do that um it's no. a really really cool thing to to add a little bit of texture you do have to be careful obviously that it's not clashing too much but like you said if you're just high passing it and throwing a bunch of reverb on it and letting it go absolutely yeah well also you have to you have to use your ear like don't think of i think when you're doing this kind of technique you don't have to think of it conceptually just listen and if there's rub that's bothering you get rid of it yep. and if there's no rub that's bothering you that means it has like an interesting sort of found sound element and you know son holo is really good at that oh yeah um, a lot of those edm guys like more of the eclectic edm guys will really incorporate that technique and it's cool it's it's a way to make even if you just have piano chords if you find some really weird synth uh, loops and high pass them it ends up giving it this like nostalgic really interesting texture you know? yeah it kind of has that vibe of you did sample an old record or you found something like a weird yeah. patch on like a like a cmi or a furfisa that you just kind of let go mm -hmm. and it almost sounds yeah. like something that you might have put in the record at one point and forgotten to take back out and i kind of love that like yeah. i'm a Which big cool. fan of those it's weird cool. things that you're like why is that there that's i would have never ever put that there but i, I really do like it, it Especially if you do what I do and your vocal is very in tune and precise, you need a little randomness 
if you have a looser vocal, you know, maybe you don't want as much of that stuff. But if you have a tight pop vocal, I find that you need some analog sampled weirdness to sort of balance out how precise the vocal is. Right. How in the box are you? Are you ever using anything that's kind of analog or outboard? Or are you pretty much all in the box? Yeah. No, I, I have an outboard chain. I spent like two years developing my vocal outboard chain. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I track a lot of guitars. Um, but it's the same chain as my vocals. I just have I have a Manly that I track on or C800G that I rent sometimes. Uh, and then I go into a Neve preamp and then a Burl A to D. And that's it. Real simple. And so if you're trying to add those lively elements, you're either always reaching for vocals or guitars because like I find that if I have a record again that feels kind of stale, I might track a guitar and I might not even tune the guitar before I play it because I kind of yeah, want totally. it to not be perfect. Like if I wanted to be yeah. perfect, I would just let shred what is it shreddage two or whatever play it out but i think that yeah. having that is like it's kind of this cool thing and i think that that's why you know everybody talks a lot about vocal tuning and stuff like that they're like well why do these pop artists tune all their vocals and stuff like that it's like if ariana grande didn't everything in her record is so pitch perfect that if she was just a yeah. little bit off it's going to sound insane where back in the 70s yeah. you could have a disco record that had live horns live guitar live bass and if that vocalist is pitchy mm -hmm. so is everything else because it's lively but like intonation yeah. changes well, you, you got to think in a record where everything's live sounding, basically everything is chorusing against itself. Right. You, you have a vocal that's slightly out and then the guitar, everything is slightly out and ends up having like a chorusy kind of like a choir, like a queen choir, for example. That's natural chorusing because there's just so many vocals. And that's sort of how live records sound. If you're just doing the vocal against a like a really precise track, like you said, it's, it's sort of a weird feel. Maybe someone could make it work. I, I'm not a massive fan of that contrast. I'm not either. Going on to like vocal production, because I know that's something that honestly is kind of like a staple of your records. Do you have like a couple tricks that you just constantly reach for in your bag that are like the platinum tricks? Like I know Black Bear's got the four minute yeah. shift. I know that other, you know, Travis Scott has his like roomy ad libs. What would you say are like the staple platinum elements of a vocal production? Yeah. Uh, I would say now all of these techniques that the precursor to all these techniques is that you're working with audio because if you try to route this, you're going to want to quit production and do something else. Cause it's no fun. <laughs> um, print, print audio, and then you can chop it up real easy. Like, like you could teach a toddler to chop up audio. You don't want to be routing. It's too complicated. <laughs> um, so yeah, precursor is you're working with audio. I would say automated bit crush is an effect that I use a lot. Um, not just with ad libs. Like I th just think certain lines need a little more bite. So I use a little bit of the Antares throat emulator and bit crusher. I like that combo a lot because the, the Antares throat emulator doesn't feel like a normal format plugin. It feels actually more realistic. Right. So I use that one and bit crush and that'll literally be on a line by line basis. Um, I use throw delays like it's no one's business and those throw delays have their own set of effects and also the way I would say the way that I do harmonies, I don't usually hear uh, from other artists. I don't like tracking harmonies. I prefer to track one harmony and then create a stack in Melodyne because you get these really interesting. Every time you stretch in Melodyne, it has a slight artifact. And when you stretch up and down with like a four part harmony, there's all these interesting artifacts happening simultaneously that makes like a cool bendy choir. And that's something I do. And like Sacrilegious, one of my records from Hellbound has tons of that effect on it. Yeah, well, that Those was another three. one that we talked about um, when we did our chat a couple months ago was you were saying that you were like, I never track vocal harmonies because that was one thing that you had asked me about my workflow is being in pop. I was like, we have tons of vocal harmonies and I've tried yeah. it since then. I had done it before then. 
but I've tried it on like darker records that are supposed to have that like yeah. weird. It almost has like in horror movies, you know, where they'll shift the vocal down a few steps and then they'll kind yeah. of blend that yeah, in with yeah, a natural yeah, yeah. vocal. It kind of has that effect, and it's like it sounds like this really mm-hmm. fucked up vocoder. And it's something that I feel it's, like it's a yeah, exactly. It's such a yeah. weird thing, and again, that's something that you're not going to get if you go through and track number one because if you're trying to do a harmony, you have to match intonation if you want it to be that tight. And that's, mm-hmm. again, you're spending a lot of time on something that nobody really cares about in a record that yeah. you're making. You know, I, Again, if you're making an Ariana Grande record where that's what people are tuning in for, go for it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah that's that was a choir a, sound. If you, if you want a choir sound, track your, your harmonies. Right. If you want like a very picturesque, like beautiful choir, track your harmonies. It's just not what I do. Right. Do you find, because I know that we're going to get a million questions about this. Anytime I tell anybody to duplicate anything, everybody comes at my ass about phase. Do you ever have issues with phase? Let's just set the record straight. Do I have? No, 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 because when you stretch vocals, it's not an identical audio file. It's not. Once you start introducing pitch shift and format shift, it's, you're not going to really have phase issues, particularly Melodyne, because it's actually not identical. Like it's not that precise a plugin where if you pitch it up, you know, three semitones, it's going to be exact. I, I don't really have phase issues. I told um, people the I exact same thing. Yeah. Everybody's so yeah. worried about it. And I was like, if you process your audio and people think that retracking is the only thing that affects phase. I was like timing pitch and just oh, in yeah. general, like you could add something like a distortion and it's not going to phase the same way. That's why like yeah. you can do that vocal effect where you duplicate a track and you pitch it down an octave and you have something like a doubler. It's not going to phase. You're going to yeah. be fine. Just, do it so thank you for you really get a lot of questions about phase every fucking video that we have something that is <laughs> i'll be like the, of course i have every single video i have to be like here's how you do the the low vocal yeah, that you yeah. hear in black bear and chase atlantic and all of my records and you just duplicate the track turn it down 12 semitones and auto-tune and put doubler on it and take away the middle channel yeah. oh it's gonna mm-hmm. phase it's gonna phase i was like number one i added doubler so no it's not it's all time and pitch delayed but number two well, like yeah. it's fine who cares? You can also add a, add a phase plugin on there and actually look at the correlation, you know, the phase meters, and then just see if it's phasing. For me, I, I've never – so I always do a phase check at the end of my mixes, and I, I mean this sincerely. Never in my career have I had a phase issue. I have not either. I've done like a thousand records. I've never had anything that I was like, oh, that guitar just completely disappeared in mono. I've never had a phase issue. And also my correlation has never been bad. It, I don't know. And maybe other people are producing in a different way than we do because we, we have a similar ideology with production. Uh, maybe there's, I mean, if you're doing a live record, there are other issues like a multi-mic setup live record. I could see there being phase issues. If you have four mics on a piano, I could see there being phase issues. Right. Um, but if you're producing in the box, I doubt it. Yeah. Also, it's not that serious. Okay, I just had to get you to weigh in. Otherwise, the Instagram's just going to be 30 comments of like, when he... I can't believe it. It's insane. I was like, there are so many other things that you could focus on in a record. Who gives a shit? <laughs> all right cool yeah well, thanks. absolutely roast your demo man make make fun of him <laughs> yeah i know right he's like see i was right the whole time <laughs> I, give it to him yeah I, yeah i was like are you're listening on your iphone speaker why are you worried about face right now like people have yeah. it's are very particular they like to be very by the book yeah that's the word yeah. i'm looking for uh, yeah i've noticed that which i was I, like that yeah I, I think a lot of people are like that when they first start but i think it can really put you in a box creatively when you do that when you stick by a book. I, I also think if you, <laughs> what I did, and this the core mistake I made was I just thought compression was the only thing that mattered. So I would just, I, I got every compressor. 
I bought, <laughs> I wasted so much money on 14 different <laughs> compressors that do the same thing. Yep. And I was just sit there like, what is the knee doing? If the knee on my compression isn't right, I won't be able to stream. It just, it, it just, <laughs> Again, that might matter a lot more on an Adele record that's piano and vocal only, yeah. where if you fuck up that ratio totally. or the attack and it's kind of got this weird, uh, you know, like pumping yeah. effect, but. I've got like 200 tracks in my records. Nobody's going to care. Yeah, exactly. I don't um, I don't compress it's, it's, almost anything except my lead vocal. Like that's it. It totally it's different. Again, if you're making a ballad and you want to be Louis Capaldi, you know, the next Louis Capaldi, then yeah, you got to be concerned about the granular elements because there's two things. There's a piano and a vocal. Yep. I mean, if you're doing a piano and a vocal, you better get damn good at your piano sound or yeah. you're going to make records that are not as good as Lewis Capaldi. Um, <laughs> but if you're doing what me and you do and what sort of the more maximal side of alt pop does, it's really more about the the, the picture as a whole. I you know? 100% agree. I think there are so many cool things that you could spend your time on rather than worrying about stuff yeah. like that. All right, totally sweet. Agree. Well, thanks for walking us through your uh, production techniques and kind of strategy. I was surprised to hear that your instrumental is like almost completely done before you track vocals. I would have really? thought you had, yeah, I would have thought you had like a skeleton and then you go in and you do all your insane ear candy after to kind of fit vocals. Cause you have a lot of like call and response with sound effects yeah. and things like that. And I was like, that has to be after. So I don't know. Well, I, I, I know the top line when I'm producing. I usually have the the songwriting done when i'm producing or at least an idea of what the melodies will be so that's where the call and response stuff comes into play okay yeah that's fair i've again like you said it just kind of makes sense especially for vocal delivery because you have a couple different vocal deliveries i've heard you kind of dive into you've got like a couple characters that you'll kind of do on your record so it mm -hmm. makes sense that you have to know what the record is before you can kind of do that rather than tracking Nicki it over Minaj a piano ballad yeah Nicki minaj is my hero bro she is she is the og of the multi-character vocal delivery back to 1975 she's too they're unreal. very good at it matt matt healy has yeah. like oh yeah he's got like four or five characters that he'll do what's the what's the record the oh, i don't want to like stutter here and try to figure out what record i'm talking about it's the opening record of their last full or two full lengths ago give me one second i'm gonna pull it up on spotify there's one record where matty healy gets really varied with his vocal delivery yeah, love me yeah, I was going to say, he loved me. He's got like that, like Peter Gabriel, like yelling, shout yeah, yeah. kind of vibe. And then he's got his like, kind of like strung out Elvis kind of vibe. And then he's got his totally. like really soft, delicate indie pop. And I think it's one of those things of like, you have to know the vibe of the record before you go and track vocals. It's not just about how far am I standing from the mic? What is my vocal chain for this record? It's how are you going to actually perform that? So it makes sense that you've kind of got, you know, a pretty solid idea of where that record is ending up how do you yeah, know that a record is finished because if you're bouncing between once you've done vocals and you've popped them back into your session with all of your production stems is that just mixing and then stamping and getting it out yeah i, I think the record is done when you feel that you've lost a few brain cells once you've reached <laughs> that point and you feel that you've hit yourself in the forehead with a hammer a few times then the record's done <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think for, for me it really did used to be that way when, I, when I started i would work on it until i felt unhappy meaning i've just done this i knew a record long. was like, done I when i this. fucking hated it i was yes. like yeah i yes. just yes. i don't even want to release this anymore why did i even finish it <laughs> that's a valid way to work by the way this is a conceptual thing I've, I've worked on you can listen to a record to the point where you dislike it and you're more objective yeah that's a technique it's true you can listen because if you're making it you're so i think i've seen people get so excited about their ideas when they're trying to finish songs that they have no objectivity 
they cannot tell which of their songs is better because they're just whatever they're making at that moment is so cool mm-hmm. that it's the best thing and they always feel that way so i not that i'm recommending this because it does I'll, I'll acknowledge it does take the fun out of music a little bit but if you listen to it 150 times you'll be less excited and you'll be more objective yeah you really <laughs> <So> will <laughs> Do with that information what you will. It's never a bad idea to sit yeah. on a song for a couple of weeks and then come back, even like no matter where you are in the process and be like, do I feel the same about this as I did 10 yeah. minutes into it in the room? Because if you do, Definitely. it's an amazing song. And if you don't, exactly. then I need a little bit of work. But that's painful. That's painful because you, you will be so excited about something and you'll listen to it 50 times, take 48 hours and let's do it again and be like, this is not my best work. And yep. that's not a good feeling. But it's, it's a point of maturation. I think, it's better 48 hours though than like, you know, two weeks. Yeah, definitely. It's better that you you know, figure that out quickly as opposed to mixing a record and then mm-hmm. figuring out you don't like it. Yeah. Better. Or like you're going to um, release it and you're like, oh, wait, this actually isn't good. Ooh. I want to change this and that. <laughs> that would not be good. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, get some yeah. submit hub feedback and you're Are like, you- fuck, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sorry, I, I went on a tangent, but no, I, I think a record is done when the impact, the desired impact is where it needs to be. Right. I don't get really concerned about specific arrangement elements i'm more concerned about if i play this for someone is the desired impact where it needs to be that's it and then which is a different it's sort of a analysis but but and once a once a record gets mixed it's 100 percent coming out for you because you've you've put those final touches on it oh, yeah. okay oh yeah the reason i do the reason i don't produce for other people is i want i don't think i release very much music and i know you opened up this podcast by saying i'm always releasing stuff and i appreciate that but i could do 10 times as that I, I could i know for a fact i could release 20 songs a year I just, I just have that capacity and I haven't tapped into it yet. So for me, it's like, I'm not going to produce for other people until I feel like I've hit my, my maximum production of songs that I'm excited about per year. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about because you are very, very good with songwriting, production and mixing. So it's not a question of like, could you also have that as either a side hustle or a full-time career? But it was one of those things Mm -hmm. that I did want to talk about of like, how have you kind of stayed tunnel vision to only work on your own stuff or collaborative projects that you're you know, having friends on rather than yeah. doing a record for a cool artist that could propel your career? Is it just that simple fact of like, I owe it to myself as an artist to put in my best work for myself and see what I can do. And then later yeah. I'll take other things or what? what's it like for I you? Don't, I, I might produce for other people. I've definitely had requests. I, I For me, the prospect... One, creatively, it's more fulfilling to work on my own stuff. And that's not the case for everyone. I'm not saying that's universal. That's just me. Um, but but more importantly, and this is sort of the business end of things, I, I want to give my royalties to my future children in, you know, I want them to inherit my royalties. So for right. me, it's like I could make X amount of money doing a Derulo record, or I could have a song that does 100 million streams over 10 years and then give those perpetuity royalties to my kids. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like multi-generational approach to, to the music business as opposed to getting the cash as quick as possible. I'd rather have a catalog that just churns forever. And right. that's been the nature of my career so far is that it just builds and all the songs that I released in 2015 still go and songs I released two years ago still stream. So for me, it's longevity more than anything. Yeah. So are you, do you currently own all of your masters? Are you like self-published yeah. at the moment? Yeah, I don't ever. You plan to stay that way, I assume. I don't think that anybody with a few million monthly listeners who can (laughs) put out a record once or even twice a month needs a label. Production yourself. Why would you need a label? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, you don't need a $100,000 budget to do a couple songs. Like, you should make them yourself. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's and that was key to me because I, I knew, and again, this is the business end of things because a lot of what I do, like my day is split in half. There's music and business and there's different sort of time periods in which I go to the coffee shop in the morning, I do music, I reset, and then I go in the studio. Um, for, for me, it's it's about how can I get my songwriting process as lean as possible so this is sustainable. Mm. And so that means like how do I not burn? Because at the beginning of my career, I didn't want to burn my budget on on having someone mix my record, so I just learned it. Right. Um. So for me, it's like, how can I get all these? And obviously, I love it now. And that was the right decision for me because creatively, I love it. Some people don't love it creatively, so they'll choose a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question for me is, how do I get songs out, make them profitable as quick as possible, so to spend as little as possible within reason? I still spend a lot of money on songs, but within reason. Um, and then how do I have them be profitable for the next 50 years? So how do I create longevity in my career? That's sort of the model for me. I don't try to make records have big first weeks because as an indie, that's not really the model. I mean, indies don't have big first weeks. Indies build hits over time. That's the model. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's a good the, point. the biggest song that I have the first week maybe got like 10,000, 12,000 streams. Yeah. Now it's like 2 mm-hmm. million. And I, ha- I haven't promoted yeah. it in two years. It's like got on a bunch of uh, like K pop super fan cuts and like K drama totally. cuts. And then I'm like, oh, now I just get $1,000 from TuneCore once a month. For a song that, that I haven't will, cared about in three years. That will keep happening too. Exactly. That will just keep happening. That, that's the beauty. When people complain about the streaming model, it, it kind of frustrates me. Because if you're able to put out music that people want to hear, and I'm not saying that to be harsh. That's just the truth. If people want to hear it, the algo will pick it up. And then it will stream forever. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. That is a empowering thing for independent artists. Yeah. It's a very different model than anything that's ever been on the table before. That's I true. completely agree. And I think that a lot of people, I mean, yeah, I do think that streaming companies could have better payouts, but like I don't run those I businesses. Agree. I don't know their overhead. I don't know how much money goes yeah. into that to sustain that. But I always tell people too, it's like, I know that this is something we've talked about before is it's not just necessarily about you making half of a cent every time somebody streams a song that one time. It's that they're going to save that and they're going to stream that song three yeah. times a day for a year. And then you release merch yeah. and they're going to buy a t-shirt and then you play a show and they're going to come out and spend $40 to come to your show. It's like, I think that you can easily use something like Spotify as a social networking tool as much as you mm-hmm. can for a platform to catalog your music for people to listen to it. Because almost every independent artist I know would be a tenth of their size if there wasn't something like Spotify or Apple Music where people easily had access to it for five, 10, 15 bucks a month to listen to whatever they want. They wouldn't sell, like, do you, you've done over a hundred million on Champagnes and Sunshine, right? Mm -hmm. So do you think realistically you would have actually sold on iTunes Music 15 years ago a hundred million copies of it? Did I say thousand? A hundred million. (laughs) A hundred million, yeah. I I don't... not due to talent, but it's less likely that I have a career exactly. at this magnitude. Ten years yeah. ago. Like I, I, and again, I, maybe I'm biased because the system works for me and I do want to keep that in mind, but it, I, I put a song on Spotify at 18. It did a million streams in three months. I got f- like four grand from TuneCore and I went college. No. And then I got out, of, I dropped out of NYU and I started putting out music every month. And then the fifth song I put out was Champagne and Sunshine. Yeah. And ever since then, I mean, every everything streams. I think if you curate a catalog and a fan base that's, that's on streaming services, it's such a good model. And you don't have to be a multi-million monthly act to do well. 
You don't have to, if you're lean and you're self-published and you have like a couple hundred thousand monthly, you could be making a living on Spotify and you could be reliant on no one. You, you don't need a label. You don't need anyone to approve your releases. You can put out whatever you want, whenever you want. That is a good thing. Yeah, I completely agree. And then you also have the power in your own hand to turn that half a cent listener into somebody who's going to be a $50 listener with having things like, yeah. you know, private shows or, you know, the merch or exclusive fan clubs. And it's one of those things that like that doesn't really it, it exist when you're a label artist, but that money doesn't come to you, right? right. Like you're, you're going to get some of it, but you're not going to get all of it. So it's like, would you rather have a hundred thousand people that support you on their dime that comes directly to your pocket? Or would you rather have 5 million people that support you that you're only getting 20, 30% of is like, yeah. What? Why? You know. So it's it's cool to hear though that you've been able to kind of get there. And like you said, it doesn't work for everybody. Some people don't want to do the business aspect. Like I know, I know. We talked to, and I want to respect that. Yeah, like we Sorry, talked to Joan. They were our first guest ever, and they're on like a smaller indie label. And like I know Riley's on a smaller indie label, and people like that, they're like, I don't want to spend my whole day figuring out marketing or figuring out where to print my merch yeah. or figuring out how to set up my own tour. I want to have somebody, and like that's totally understandable. But with this being your full-time job and especially with you being a solo act, like you're not a band, it, it makes a lot of sense since I think m maybe I'm speculating here, but it seems like you kind of inadvertently built the fan base before you even built the expectation of a career. Like you were kind of just yep. like, oh shit, like these people yes. are here. I don't have a lot of pressure to make this my career because I'm getting paid for it already. That's exactly, that's why I have the perspective that I do because I- Same. I started building the fan base without really meaning to. And then I was like, oh, okay. And there's this other interesting phenomenon in streaming where you have lots of people who make a million bucks a year who don't have a fan base that would see them at a show. Lo-fi is a great example of that. That's a new phenomenon. Yep. You have lo-fi acts who do between 500K and a million dollars in royalties a year. And they don't really have a fan base. They're just the best at making music for studying. Yep. Mm -hmm. And like that's a new phenomenon. That's Streaming, true. you can you can do the, the fan base oriented model where you build people that want to see your show, people want to buy your merch, people that engage with you on social media who repeat listen, or you can build a whole other kind of business where it's literally one hundred percent music centric. It's mm -hmm. not even about the brand. And that works for some people too. So I think that's interesting. That, that is, didn't exist 15 years ago. Yeah, no. that is super interesting. I've actually never even really thought about that, about how those big-ass YouTube channels that are just, I mean, hundreds of millions of views with an yeah. unsplash image of them just going through an hour soundscape loop. Yep. They're bringing in bank. Bro. It's I, I have friends that have done like children's music or like um like meditation music. And they're like, yeah, I can yeah. make $15,000 a month literally just playing yep. a C chord over a soundscape because yep. there is such a huge fucking audience for that. And they don't ever need to see me. I don't have to post on TikTok. I don't have to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and that's great yeah, for people I mean, who don't want to be like figures, you know, like public figures at all. Like if you still like making music, you, but you don't want to be in the public eye, that's kind of like perfect. And that didn't exist. Yeah. I, so I'm so interested in this concept that I'm not going to give you the name of these projects because this is a secret. This is a very secret endeavor. I have 15 side lo-fi projects oh, and shit. they all release twice a month. And uh, I, I don't let myself spend more than a minute and a half on each song. I set a timer and I give myself 90 seconds to finish a song. And what I go hell? chord, 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 <laughs> drum, drum, drum. I release 24 a year for 15 projects. I'm never going to tell anyone what the name of the projects are. I did this because I was interested in what would happen on stream. I wanted to analyze what would happen if you started a lo-fi project from scratch. Like a and they all collaborate with each other. On yourself. So, <laughs> 
Yep, it's just for fun. I sit in this room and I drive myself insane. So <laughs> Lo-Fi Project number three collabs with Lo-Fi Project number nine, then Lo-Fi Project number two with 10. And it just every week something comes out. And so far there's a couple million streams and I launched it a few months ago. So <laughs> just a theoretical experiment. Lucrative that for some throwaway so, instrumentals. That is so funny yep. to me. I know people that it's it's kind Pretty of smart. similar to, it's not a new, it's kind of like the older version of this, but it, I know people who have worked out of like sync houses where they'll basically go yeah. in and they'll be like, today we're doing 30 songs. We're going to send them to a bunch of sync publishers. And mm-hmm. if one gets cut, that's a few thousand dollars. If another one gets cut, that's a few thousand dollars. And in a couple mm-hmm. weeks, they can put together 200 songs and out of those 200, 10 get picked up and they're paid for the year. It's just like, there's yeah. so many different avenues where you don't necessarily have to be releasing a three and a half minute song every single month, playing mm-hmm. live shows with 200,000 followers on Instagram. It's like, that's cool if, if you want to go that way and you can, but you don't have to. No, I, I, listen, that, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to build the biggest fan base I can and play the biggest shows I can. I'm doing the conventional model, but like, again, even there, there I forgot the guy's name, but there's this dude, I, I, I'm, I'm blanking on his name and I apologize because he should get the shout out, but he just makes one and a half, one minute TikTok sounds. And they're produced out. They're kind of hip hop beats with like goofy sound effects. He's got like two million monthlies, million, million and a half monthlies. And because that has a place in, in culture. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that dude, I don't really, I don't know that dude, but I don't really think he's looking to be Justin Bieber. No, He's just doing the thing that he's good at and he's making great money in a career doing it. And like that's streaming enabled. That. Yeah, you take the and six to 10 grand a month and then you're chilling. And then you could go do other stuff. I, I have friends who are producers who have lo-fi side hustles, who have children's music side hustles, who have ambient side hustles, who have artist side projects that they don't even brand that do well. Yep. And so for me, it's like the idea that I can sit in this room, make a song and put it on Spotify, then who knows what could happen is infinitely exciting. And I'll do this until it stops working. Yeah, I think that's such a good way to think about it. And that actually kind of like inadvertently ties into one of the topics that we had on our call sheet of like what are some of the struggles and payoffs of being a full-time musical artist and I think a payoff is like you have the time to do those weird things that you wouldn't necessarily think about but if you can find a lane are pretty lucrative are pretty low effort and they're kind of just fun like you know it's 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 so so low I I think you should do one I I would really suggest that you start a children's music project I actually have one (laughs) oh my god of course you do (laughs) I have 16 children's ones too by the way (laughs) I don't have 16 yet (laughs) they they like look up the credits and they're like oh Mike oh platinum and then they hear the song and it's like talking about like all kinds of insane <laughs> shit. <laughs> my biggest, my biggest fear is that I'm going to distro one of the kids' song under platinum. Oh no! It's my biggest fear. <laughs> it's my biggest fear. You just played off as a joke. You just feel like, oh yeah, haha, gotcha. Uh, It'd be worse if a platinum listen, song got accidentally released on the. Kids that would be song. way. Worse. That would be way worse. <laughs> so, so I just launched the kids' project, and uh, there's like there's only like 300 playlist editions, but it's all toddlers' birthday parties. And I'm so into it. So it's like, it's like Johnny's third birthday, 12 streams. So they just repeated that. I'm just imagining a bunch of like suburban families at their pool parties. And <laughs> But I, I think, I think you, my man should do a soundscape project. Just, just three and a half minutes sleep playlist stuff. I need to, I have a friend who's a producer, Andrew Wade. He's like a pop punk rock yeah. producer and he has a soundscape project mm-hmm. and he was like dude it's so easy you can literally they don't care you just turn on omnisphere and you just pick a pad mm-hmm. and you hold a c major and that's it and then you just let it play and through and automate a couple things you, I, I will recommend that you do the same things me because you're just like me you sit in the session and you torture yourself with sound design on your saturday take 15 minutes minutes 
finish five of them, distro them, and then go do whatever you got to do. It's like (laughs) when I make lo-fi, it's like the most reductionist basic version of production Mm -hmm. compared to platinum, which is just pain and misery. (laughs) And it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful compliment. I think it keeps, it's got to keep you sane though, because of every single session you went into, you had the goal of like, this is going to be a session that I spent 30 hours on and has 500 tracks and inserts by the end. It's like, at some point, you tap that pretty quick, whether you mean to or yeah. not, if you're not having those palate cleansers, even like we kind of alluded to earlier. Um, so that's really cool, though. It's it's cool to hear that you kind of like push yourself to kind of do whatever people will listen to and enjoy. You're just like, whatever. I don't feel a need to kind of sneakily, put a boundary on my creation. Sneakily on the side that no one knows about. No one is. So no yeah, one also, in your life knows about it. Like not one person. My close friends do. OK, I was but wondering. I'm never going to post about it. No, like I, why would it's you? not it's. I don't need it to be like as lucrative as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. I, what I'm interested in is because I always, I think what it was for me is I always preach, you know, I, I sing the praises of streaming. And I think I've had like a bunch of debates with older musicians in my life where I've said, you guys aren't getting it. This is a model that's really good. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to sort of test my theory, right? I wanted to be like, if I'm just a, a new person who wants to put music out, who's trying to enter the music industry, is this viable? And my experiment so far says yes. I didn't want to have that perspective and not prove it. So I, I basically did this so that I could confidently, in these kind of situations, say streaming is, is a say, net Say, shut the fuck up, I'm right. <laughs> That's why yes. he did it. It's very important. It might really just trying to stroke my <laughs> yeah. ego. It's very You're important. Like, I'm proven I'm right, whether people like it or not. <laughs> I think that too, it, like, it does the best job of kind of painting the picture of whether you're trying to be a a commercial artist or whether you're trying to have something like a lo-fi side project or like we just had uh, sides who's a wonderful content creator on Instagram and TikTok. She does short form content. And her thing was like, I post every day. It's all about consistency, whether that's every day on your platform or every week or every month as an artist is like, especially the earlier you are in building your fan base, the more you can be consistent. It's so much easier for people to then invest a little bit of their attention into you because they know that you're going to follow that up with something. So if they're seeing like, oh, this lo-fi project releases regularly or, oh, they're dropping a song every month or they have a couple EPs a year, they're going to follow you rather than just being like, oh, they had one cool song that I heard on new release Friday seven months ago. And that, for me, that was really big. I mean, with following up Champagne and Sunshine, it's really easy to let a record like that sort of overshadow everything else that you're doing. So it's been a really big battle to make sure that the fan base understands that there's more right there's more and, and what's really cool is i i have another record that's about to do on daily streams outstream champagne and sunshine my record coffin i was gonna say it's coffin right coffin's cranking man yeah so coffin this is a really cool marketing conversation it, coffin did two to three thousand streams a day it was a track three on the hellbound ep it was my favorite um, on the hellbound ep i didn't want to release it i had it in the banks for two years i thought it was bad i liked it first <laughs> listen i was like this is a banger yeah, I, I can't A and R myself. I, you know, it's it's really hard to be objective with your own music. Yeah. Um. So the anime music video community on YouTube, it just lost their minds over it. They start. I mean, there's like even to this day. I mean, it's now peaking. There's like two hundred to four hundred anime edits a day on YouTube of that song. Um, and for whatever reason, it's just it's got like that that sort of signature platinum thing where it's like really bravado and maximal, and and this one just resonated with that community. And so a record for that for its first ten months did nothing is now doing well over a hundred thousand streams a day, and you know it, it's all because of anime edits and now the broader viral infrastructure. So that's just why you got to take as many at bats as you can. You never know how your music's going to be consumed. Yeah. You don't know. One, dude, mine is literally the exact same story, but for like, uh, like 
Japanese and Korean drama fan edits. It's like Very my cool. song 100 Ways, like again, was doing nothing. And then it got on like a really big, like, what is it, Milk and Coffee or something edit yeah. that got like 3 million views in two days. Well, that's cool. even like our friend really cool. Grayson is the same. He had a song that released what was that, five years ago? Yeah, I got on a Starbucks playlist and got on a bunch of these like Indonesian yeah. videos and now it's, but it's now at like it's 4 getting... million streams and he hasn't spent a dime on marketing. And that was, but yeah. he released it five years ago and now it's becoming like, it's getting all these streams and it's like you never, he never would have thought that that would have happened when he released that song five years ago. You can't guess that kind of stuff. There's also, there's also a, a, a broad stroke trend with Spotify that's kind of challenging right now. They posted the data. I think 60% of all streams on Spotify are, are catalog streams. Mm. So I think people are inundated. Consumers are inundated. Music fans are inundated with the amount of content that comes out on Spotify. So they tend to reach for slightly older things now mm -hmm. just because they're more familiar. And I think it's, it's I mean, if you, if you use Spotify as a consumer, it's like, how do you keep up with the pace of releases? You don't. Yeah. So there's a long-term trend towards older songs having more relevance because they're more familiar. So that's a good and a bad thing. It means that your catalog is more valuable than ever, but also it's more challenging to break new records. Yeah. Right. So, well, I think that's good though for people who, a lot of people put a lot of pressure on themselves when they release new songs so I think this whole conversation hopefully will ease a little bit of people whose songs maybe aren't getting tens of thousands of view, uh, streams the first week. Yeah. You know? yeah, it doesn't. Don't put the pressure on it, dude. That song's going to be up there forever until you take it down. Maybe one day it gets yeah. two million streams. Maybe it doesn't. That's totally fine. Like mm -hmm. you literally never, yeah. ever know. It, it'll almost always be when somebody least expects it unless they spend mm -hmm. an insane amount yeah. on marketing or they pay to get on a certain playlist. Like unless you're on well, New Music Friday or Rap Caviar. But also keep in mind that the conventional model is a little bit broken because if, if you're on New Music Friday and you know, the problem with New Music Friday, and, and this is what I do on the marketing side, so I just, I'm inundated with this all day. Um, you're getting all genre listeners yep. when you're on New Music Friday. You're getting hip hop fans, pop fans. You're getting uh, adult contemporary fans. You know, pe the same people who like Burna Boy, the same people who like mainstream hip hop are listening to the playlist with the same people like Lewis Capaldi. So they're not all going to like the same mm -hmm. records. So sometimes that can mess up with your algorithm. The algorithm on Spotify as a smaller artist is your best friend because it'll send your music to the people that are likely to like it. So really, as a small artist, what you want is you want the first 100 streams, 1,000 streams to be people who are, are really into what you do mm -hmm. because that's how everything blossoms. If you're, you know, if you're doing bad marketing and you're getting the music out to anyone that will listen, you might mess up Spotify's ability to spread your music. So you, really, all your job is as an indie artist, smaller artist, is to get your music to an initial batch of people who like it and then let the platform and the ecosystem do it. 100%. I think it's really easy to get like caught up, especially being in, you know, like I run all the pop communities being a pop artist. You almost feel like everybody is your audience. But if you can mm -hmm. find like a little yeah. niche audience to really narrow down on, there are almost no niche audiences that within themselves are not big enough to mm -hmm. like catapult an entire career for you. You know, mm -hmm. like yeah. you, you're kind of in what most would consider a pretty small niche genre, but you've got songs, multiple songs, tons of songs. Millions of streams, tens of millions of streams, hundreds of millions of streams, all mm -hmm. from these genres that are a little bit left of center, you know, like it's not your yeah. traditional top 40s pop or your traditional rap caviar trap music. It's like these audiences are out there. You don't necessarily have to be enjoyed by every single person to have a career. No, no and it's with the genre that I'm in, which is sort of hard to place. It, there are like the biggest example I can think of right now is the neighborhood. Yep. Like yeah. very difficult to place what genre that is. It's definitely alternative. Where in the alternative spectrum <laughs> you place it, who yeah. knows? Um, but what's interesting about them is they're like top 10 
on Spotify right now. And they're not top 10 because of a breakout hit. They're top 10 because their catalog gets used on social media. TikTokers use it. Anime channels use it. Uh, K-pop fan edits use it. Everyone likes their music because it's moody and it works in a variety of contexts. What genre they're in is very unimportant to their success. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like, I think they've just found ways to make themselves relevant a bit. They had one song seven years ago that every single year now is going to place top 20, top 10. Especially this time of year. It just resonated. And like you said, I mean, we've seen it with Mariah Carey with her Christmas music. It's like, she's pulling in three, two or three commas every year. Yeah. She's also yeah. Mariah Carey. For, yeah, but still. Like, <laughs> no, I know. I, I know when she made that song, she wasn't like, this is going to get streamed for the night. Well, streaming wasn't a thing. She definitely didn't re- know that how popular it was going to be, you know, 20-something years right. later. Like, that's crazy. Well, and like, having a big song that can pop up every, you know, couple years and it can have a big run, you're just, you're almost never going to get that same amount of audience in one small batch. So it's really good yeah. to have that return catalog. It's, it's a long game. You want to build a body of work that has multiple applications that people keep going back to. Especially, again, this is a new thing for me. I, I, I have stopped chasing big first weeks. Chasing big first weeks is a really easy way to both discourage mm-hmm. yourself and to also sort of lose sight of the picture. What you're doing is you're building a catalog that people reference for a bunch of different uses and that they want to stream for years and years and years and years and years. And if you can do that, you make a ton of money and you'll be very fulfilled. That and I think that it goes a lot to say too of like, everybody's being promoted to all the time. Even when I release stuff as an artist or when I'm working with artists, most of the people that I work with are not the, I'm going to promote a single a month before it comes out. It's like, you get a a very finite amount of times that you can tell somebody about something before they're just like, I don't give a shit. Or they forget about it or they're introduced to something. Like we get fed so much information. You can't have like a huge rollout like that anymore. Right. Because it's like, uh, if someone does that, I'm literally going to forget about it. Even like make pop music, yeah. I'm not going to promote a sample pack for two months before we release it because I'd rather release it a week before or pr- uh, tell people about it a week before we release it. And then once it's actually out, because it's so much easier for people to say, oh, Platinum released a new song a week ago. I can actually go listen to it now rather than remind yeah. themselves Platinum's releasing a new song in a month. I need to come back and it's check no that. Exactly. They can't They can't download that immediately. I haven't, I haven't announced my EP on social yet and it comes out in 11 days. Yeah. Because if I announce it now, I, I run the risk of a certain portion of the fan base. Just not that they want to forget it, but forgetting yeah. it. I'll announce it 48 hours before. I'll go, hey, seven songs. Yeah. And I'll go, holy shit. And ah, then people are so stoked. As opposed to, yeah. Well, and it's also, it's just, I mean, this is this is a negative in some ways. The, the TikTok attention span and the, the sort of consumer mm. trends in like the landscape are, are definitely short form. Yeah. Um, but the good news is you have a lot of interest in catalogs right now. So people are listening to artists. Right. They're not just li- – Chase Atlantic's another example. People don't like Chase Atlantic for one song. People like Chase Atlantic for the same reason people like The Neighborhood. There's a catalog of music that is moody and works for them emotionally. Mm-hmm. 100 per- They have to find one song. Like, yeah, they might hear Swim on a TikTok. But again, if all yeah. they can go and listen to is Swim, great. They made half yeah. a cent. But if they can listen to their four albums that they have – Awesome. Yeah. Now that one listener just gave them $7 and they're getting hundreds yeah. of thousands of listeners a day. It's like, it's hard for people to support you when you don't have that much to offer yet. So you have to get songs now, out. You think a fan, and this is the same with your sample packs and with your content and everything you guys do, which is endlessly impressive. Thank you, dude. I appreciate um, it. Yeah, man. Uh, the key is to think of fan experience. You know, it's hard. You detach yourself from fan experience when you're in the entertainment industry. But for me, it's like 
I know I, I, I message a lot of my fans on social and it's like, okay, I know these people. What do they want? What is what are they what is the most impactful way for them to receive this music? What kind of music is the most impactful for them to receive? Within the you know, reason, because I'm only willing to make stuff that I love, but within reason, what is what are the things that will make them tick? Mm-hmm. And and for you guys, it's like you know who your demo is, you know who loves your content. It's just about giving them the best sequential experience that you can. What, dude, fan service is literally the only reason that both of us are sitting here, self-employed, chatting with you at four o'clock on a Monday afternoon. Is like we got there because I will sit there and I'll specifically say if I'm going to spend the next month of my life making serum presets or sounds or a course, yeah. like what the fuck do you want? Like I don't want to sit there and guess yeah. when I yeah. have an audience that will tell me exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. Because if I'm gonna make it. I want it to be A, something that I enjoy, something that I'll use myself, but B, something that other people actually get use out of. Because like we went to earlier with, you know, spending a bunch of time on the wrong stuff, would you rather spend two weeks on a song where you were kind of guessing that all of your your kind of demographic would like it and maybe 20% does? Or would you rather spend that time on something that 80% of them have been consistently asking for? Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you release something. I I think I I meet a lot of musicians who are like tortured because they don't understand the difference between being a commercial musician and being a musician for yourself. Yeah. There's a distinct difference. You either make music for you, which is beautiful and awesome. And I totally appreciate that. And you do it in the most sort of pure form and you make it cause you like it and you do not care how it does. That's the, I make music for me model or you make music with your fan base in mind and they're different and you shouldn't conflate the two because if you make music for yourself and then you're upset that it's not performing with your fan base, you need to sort of understand that you're doing a different thing mm-hmm. and that's okay. And it's not wrong to make music for your fan base and it's not wrong to make music for yourself, but you should understand what the goal is when you put a song out. 100%. And like, I think it, that it's important that people don't get that confused with the facts of like, you're just trying to hit on trends. You're just doing what you think people will want to listen to. Like there has to be a little bit of that self-fulfillment. Otherwise you Definitely. either burn out or it's just a piece of shit. But yeah. like, or why, why are you doing it? If you're, if you're, preferences aren't involved why are you doing it exactly because there's somebody else that will make something that other people want to listen to if you're not enjoying it Mm -hmm. don't even bother wasting your time wasting a listener's time but i do think that it kind of shows that you know it's it's like loose strategy it's like passive strategy of of just knowing i have people that want to hear this i want to make this let's figure out where to meet in the middle for that and i can get something that people enjoy that i enjoy making and that you know like you said your kids or your grandkids one day can you know, go to college off of. That's really important yeah. to understand what's at stake when you're releasing something as an artist rather than, I think everybody wants to kind of take the whole like, oh, I do it because I love it. I do it because music means everything to me. It's like, if that was true, you wouldn't spend 70% of your time marketing the music. You would just make the music. Exactly. It, it, and again, it, it might sound cynical to some people, but it's like, if you are someone who just wants to put records out because they're the records that you like the most, I genuinely think that's a beautiful thing. Same. But I also want you to manage your expectations. I don't want you to go into that thinking you're in the middle of your first Ariana Grande cycle. Because it's a different thing. <laughs> and I'm not saying that in a, like, a demeaning way because I, I just think you need to understand that when you enter like music in the commercial sense, you know, there are different factors that come into play. And for me, it's like I really enjoy the, the middle ground between, oh, my God, this is what I want to make and this is where I want to guide my fan base. Yes. I'm not just going to keep serving my fan base coffin. Right. I'm going to serve them or champagne and sunshine. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to give them content that I think they'll like, or that I think they'll like in three months. They might grow into it. It, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of how they interact with the content. And, you know, I, 
you just got to keep your head on straight because music can be a pretty brutal industry. And I think you just have to go into releases having thought these things through and managing expectations and understanding what you're doing and why. 100%. Dude, we have talked about so much. We've dipped into your production strategy. We've dipped into your kind of mindset with figuring out where you go as an artist and how to kind of have fan service without sacrificing your own taste or your own well-being. Uh, before we kind of close out, we do have some rapid fire questions, but before we dive into that, is there anything else you want to kind of go over or let the audience to know the platform is completely yours to do whatever you want with? Oh yeah. Champagne and sunshine is by me. I made that song. <laughs> it's a key initiative for me. Chase Atlantic did not make that song. Some people think Justin Bieber made that song. No, I've even had people comment that Chris Brown made that song. No, my song. Uh, you know That's what I'm using. I knew that song. uh, That song was on my release radar like the first or second week it was out. That's crazy. So you were listening to Future. You must have been listening to Future Bass. Oh, yeah. It was like uh, I was doing Future Bass like at the time. Mm. So like all of those like travel vlog era, like piano for the verse and then yeah. Oh, and everything is orange and teal. That's what Platinum's going in the future. I like to think of myself as the king of the travel vlog. Love that. There you go. That's, but, that's the brand direction. It was, yeah, it was so funny when we linked up, you know, uh, what, four or five months ago after you had that session mm-hmm. with Riley. And you were like, oh, I know your videos. And I was like, oh, I know your music. I've known your music for <laughs> yeah. five, six years, like however long ago that song came out. What was that, 2017, yeah. 2016? Which, which record? Champagne. Champagne? Yeah. Like 15. Oh, so then, yeah, eight years. Wild, man. Yeah. I forget that I've been doing this for that long, man. I forget. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, you've released yeah. a bunch of amazing music since then. So That's we're nice. obviously going to promote everything. But before we hop into yeah, any yeah, of that, yeah. we've got some rapid fire questions. These are going to be easy. They're no stakes. I'm going to let Miranda take this little segment. So oh, feel free sure? to answer as easy or as in-depth as you want. Okay. First question. What is one piece of gear you cannot live without? It doesn't really have gear though, so... <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 plug-in. or plug-in or a plug-in yeah you can do a plug-in if you'd rather psp fet presser it's my most used compressor okay is that hardware or software that is software okay i wanted to just triple check yeah because he's like oh i have mm-hmm. a super simple setup and then we're like what's your favorite piece of gear <laughs> yeah. yeah and then he comes out i've actually got this whole wall of modular synths that i didn't talk about earlier in yeah. the podcast <laughs> You know, I spent my life savings on Moog synthesizers, so yeah. let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, one secret production trick you use in almost every song. Uh, automated bit crushing and subtle sidechain using the automation tool. Quick answer. Okay. If you could buy your dream house, where would it be? I'm Manhattan first. I, I already have a place in Manhattan and I'll, I'll, I'm looking at places in LA right now for work. Mm-hmm. So I'll have a bi-coastal setup, but it's New York or die, man. This is, this is, uh, this is my favorite place in the world. Are you from New York? <laughs> I'm from upstate originally oh, a little okay. bit. Uh, just came down 45 minutes for college and then got a place here when got some royalties. Love that. I love New York, so I do not blame you. That's quite the story. An independent mm-hmm. artist just Bought a place in Manhattan off of their royalties. That's insane. Especially because most people live in LA. I think it's cool that you live in New York. I do too. I I will go to LA for work and my whole team is in LA. I'm actually I'm about to get a place in LA by a, just like a crash pad apartment over there. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I'm not leaving. Yeah, I lo- <laughs> like I, I'm not doing it. I love New York. I say we just went to LA. LA is really cool. But I don't know. I just love New Every York. Every time I go to New York, I'm like so inspired. I went to LA and I was like, all right, I'm ready to go home. LA is cool. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't terrible. know. Something about New York. There's also something to be said. There's something to be said for having a life, social, 
and interpersonal that doesn't revolve around the music industry. Yeah. I don't want to soak in it 24-7. When I'm in New York, there's no one who does music here. No. When we talked to rare. Joan, yeah. they said the exact same thing. They were like, we'll go to New York and Nashville once a month because flights are really cheap. You can get out there. But they're in what, Arkansas, right? Arkansas, yeah. yeah. And they were like, yeah. I don't want to go to a coffee shop and somebody... They were like, if they recognize me as Joan, that's fine. But I don't want to go to a coffee shop and think that everybody there might try to network with me or that I might try to network with everybody. It's yeah. fucking exhausting. I just want to live my I'm life. That's me too. I, I have told people that I'm an entrepreneur instead of saying I'm, I'm a musician because I just don't want to have the conversation. And I know that's like, I, I just don't like the always on what can I get from you? What can you get from yeah. me? Thing. I, told, exactly so what they were saying. Yeah. I told my fucking Uber driver on the way to the airport that I was a music producer. And of course he had a musical side yep. I was like, oh yep. no. Yep. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was crazy that he did that. I was like, that was ballsy to say you're a music producer. But even when you say you're an <laughs> entrepreneur, do people not then go, oh, what do you do? Or what kind of business are you in? Yes. I have a new answer. So I, I exactly what you said was the issue with my previous answer. Yeah, so now if I don't want to do the networking thing, I say professional tennis player. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> Love that. I, I don't well, have the physique you're in for shape, that. Though. Though. Yeah, so you can do that. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm about the right height. I'm about the right size. So And I have longer hair, which is a very European And they thing, wear so hats. They would never know it was you. <laughs> also, name, name three professional tennis players. Exactly. Besides Serena Williams and, her, and Venus Williams. Name, name, name men. You don't know any. <laughs> Name three professional tennis players who are men below the age of 30. Exactly. You can't. Therefore, <laughs> I'm, my story is I'm more the size and build for somebody that does that like cornhole that they put on ESPN at 11 p.m. So I'm just <laughs> yeah, going to start yeah, going yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that should be your answer. Professional yeah. cornhole. Yeah. I, need to, I need to get one because I always just say, oh, uh, me and my husband run our own business. And then it's, oh, what kind of business? And I'm like, what kind of business? Ugh. And I'm like, I don't want to get into Would you just say it. like a media company? A media uh, company. No, because then it's like, oh, what do you, who do you go for? Fuck, yeah, you're right. You need something un You need something very particularly uninteresting. We're CPAs. No, because everybody has oh, taxes they need they want, Yeah, they want something. Yeah, no, CPAs are kind of dope. I love my accountants. So I, <laughs> I don't know. All right, so if you think of a maybe, cool maybe, career for us, you got to let me know because you seem to well, be good at give me, that. Give me 10 seconds. I got it. Maybe you guys, I mean, if you run a gardening business, that's pretty cool too. Yeah. I don't know. It's maybe a, maybe just go with them. I'm going to start just telling everybody I'm a trust fund kid. Like, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, my parents they had like a uh, they were they owned a law office and they're gone. So <laughs> I bought a gone. house. I bought a house in the suburbs in Winter Garden. They're gone. Are they dead? Or are my they parents, not there? Who knows? <laughs> no, my parents have the patent for the the door handle, so I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> they'd be like, oh, but <laughs> your house is like a very normal suburban house, and I was like, yeah, but I'm saving it. Oh yeah, you you just don't like people to know how high net worth you are. I get it. Yeah, yeah. This black T-shirt. Yeah, this is actually nine hundred dollars. <laughs> You're like Steve Jobs. Exactly. Very simple. Exactly. I'm going with the Zuckerberg the Zuckerberg treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Rapid fire. Let's go. Okay, Let's I know get we're we're getting on tangents. Okay, what do you think is your best song? Tarantino. Is that that one's released already? I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. It okay. Came out two years ago. Okay, I was gonna say it's a sleeper. I, I didn't know if you were gonna pick one that was um sneakily being released because i think it'll well, be think, it'll be out by the time this is out well then if that if that's relevant either uh jaded where we go at night or tarantino <laughs> those are the ones that are, but it's tricky i don't know i i don't know my, my music is it probably is will change not right for me. not, not for, for me you. you guys no i don't not for me i don't make it for me i make it for other people you tell me what you like all right <laughs> fair enough okay your favorite studio snack I hope you're snacking oh. if you're in the studio for like 10 hours a day. You better be snacking. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Okay, junky or healthy? Whatever you're. You I don't know. One, how, of, one of each. Are you, are you a professional tennis player in this example? Or are you a music <laughs> producer? <laughs> Two different worlds. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you one of each. Uh, <laughs> I am a gym rat, so on the healthy side, That's I'll what be I was a tub thinking. of Greek yogurt. With with uh, crystal light because it tastes like yo play, so that's the healthy what side. The heck? That was not. Oh my god, that. my man makes it up yeah. some bootleg. I thought you were gonna say like frozen berries or like granola. No, no, no. He's like, oh, crystal no, light. I, I eat like a crazy person. That's um, such a funny combination. And then, well, it it, it tastes better than you think. No, it makes sense when the, you say it. Yeah, it, it tastes like yo play, and it's got like a hundred grams of protein. So on the healthy side, we're going with that. On the unhealthy side. uh I have a bucket full of Reese's and that's not just for Halloween. I'm just a fiend. I have every, I got the big cup Reese's. I got the, the normal Reese's. They have the peanut butter on the outside chocolate on the inside Reese's. I have those. I've got the Reese's pieces. It's a Reese's. I love that. A bucket of Reese's. Bad day for a collaborator yeah. with a peanut allergy. Yeah. Get, get out of my studio. You're, you're at risk. Yeah. All right. Okay. Last question. If you had to describe your single, Stress Me Out, as a color, what color would you say? And if you want to go with the upcoming project as a whole, you can do that. Because Stress Me Out was the most recent when I wrote these. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with a Jackson Pollock painting because of the maximalism. Love that. I think when I hear Louis Capaldi, I think of a really nice rose color i think of it's like a very blended shade when i think of my music i think of mayhem and that's very intentional so i'm gonna go with with a pollock painting that you, totally you got works. a whole painting not just one color i love that it, it'd be hard yeah. to narrow down your music to one color at first i thought you were looking what? up like pantom colors for a second there. no i was trying to i was trying to make sure and embarrass myself if you guys had any art aficionados i was confirming that it was pollock you never know <laughs> can you imagine if he just pulled out like you call me out he I was like be- <laughs> you just called out all the listeners know that I'm a, I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. I can edit it out. They'll never know. <laughs> I'll leave it. Let them know. We're Let the magic of a media fake. company. I don't even know what you're... I'm going to have to Google this when we're done. So if that makes you feel any better, I don't even know what their art looks like. So... You saw it in New York. There you go. I don't say I've probably seen it in my life. The name yeah. sounds familiar, yeah. but I'm like, I don't know the name you of it. You would recognize yeah, I don't it. Say, I don't know the name of any there. artist. Oh, yeah, I see. All right. See, well, that's going to do yeah. it. Thank you so much for your time. I had an amazing time chatting with you. I'd love to get you back on literally whenever, but before we close out, feel free to let people know where they can check you out. Feel free to let them know about your project. Cause that will be out by the time that this releases. Yeah, Go yes. ahead, plug yourself for however long you want. Sure. P L V T I N U M is the spelling pronounced platinum. Anything you want. Uh, I favor Spotify as a streaming service, but whatever you use is fine. So, you know, your streaming service of choice. I have no preference. Consume my music how you like. Sweet. And then Instagram, TikTok, all of those fun ones. Yeah, I, I shit post a lot on TikTok. So if you're into that kind of thing, <laughs> go check out my absolute garbage. <laughs> all right. We'll have them all linked in the show notes. But dude, thank you so much for, cool. for taking the time to come on. I cannot wait to hear all the new material. And uh, I've really enjoyed our chat. And I'm sure that everybody else will as well. I got one thing. Of course. One thing to wrap. You're, you are one of the only references on YouTube that I think is consistently reliable for music production. I came up learning music production on YouTube. There's a lot of bullshit. It's very difficult to sift through. You are genuinely very reliable. For anyone who's listening, really good source of information. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on the podcast. Dude, I oh, honestly, so nice. I really, really appreciate that because I love your music as an artist. I love all of your production techniques and I've lifted quite a few things from you. So every time somebody asks us how to do a platinum song on the channel, I'm just like, he does it better than me. I'll get him to come on eventually. But Well, you guys tried, but then 
We had it. We had it going. Yeah. You guys talked for two hours and then it didn't yeah. work. Maybe maybe you with are, the next batch, if there's one that you feel really good about and you have a couple hours or like an hour or two, we can we can figure something out. Oh, yeah. Out. I love this, man. I'll give you a couple hours. But also you'll be hearing from my lawyers because you just admitted that you lifted my creative material. So Yeah. <laughs> I'll be on the lookout for that lawsuit. I just get a fucking cease and desist. You are never allowed to bit crush a vocal ever again. <laughs> <laughs> bit crushing is an absolute DMCA breach. No yeah. more. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. Everybody go check out Platinum on all platforms. But all right, that's going to do it. Much love, guys. Peace. Thank you.